Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 27 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek. It's episode 27? 27. Wow. I feel so grown up. Um, I feel like, you know, we've somehow come up with 27 weeks worth of material. Yeah, well. 2017. Some better than others. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Bob, Bobby, it's it's not Monday? No, it, I know I know. it seems like it is Monday the, what, uh, 17th? Yeah, but I guess it's not. Not for you and I, not recording right now. We have pre-recorded the podcast. That's always a good idea, except when it's not, because, you know, it's 2017. What could possibly what? happen <laughs> between, you know, 2 o'clock on Friday afternoon Central Time when we're recording this and, and Monday morning when we're going to put this out in the, in the Internet? All right, so we're rolling the dice a bit, but I think our topic for this week's episode, will it'll weather the weekend uh, without any drama. I mean, I certainly don't think Congress is going to repeal the 2001 authorization for the use of military force between now and Monday. Nor ever. <laughs> well, that so so therein lies the rub. So you know, we thought it would be fun, and by fun we mean you know for us, yes, um, to to do what we did with the military commissions a couple of weeks ago, and to actually take a step back from headlines and spend one of our episodes really doing a deeper dive on a recurring topic of our podcast, a recurring issue in national security law and policy, and that is, as I just alluded to, uh, the so-called AUMF, the 2001 Authorization for the Use of Military Force, 60 words enacted by Congress on September 18th, Bobby, that have really come to define so much of the armed conflict with Al-Qaeda and its affiliates over the last 15 and, oh, 15 and three quarters years. You know, I think that feature you just mentioned, that it's come to define the conflict of the past decade and a half helps explain why it's so hard to come to grips with it and, and causes so much confusion because it's it's actually a proxy, sort of a stand-in for a lot of issues for a lot of people. But we're going to try to look under the hood, get down into the weeds. We'll place it in historical context. We'll talk about how exactly it was created. We'll look closely at the events of 2001. Uh, and then we'll talk about its evolution ever since. And, and what some of the big questions are today and why, for example, it was a real headline, at least in our universe, when uh, was it about 10 days ago, right? Congresswoman Barbara Lee um, slipped in an amendment to, I guess it's what, the NDAA for fiscal year 2018 that would have actually repealed the AUMF and why why that was actually a rather interesting moment, albeit one that we think doesn't have legs. It's a, it's a, it's a focal point for yeah, discussion. That's right. That's right. So, all right. So, Let's let's start briefly at the beginning. I mean, Bobby, for our listeners who who don't spend their lives, you know, writing case books on this stuff and doing supplements that have consumed the last two weeks of their lives, you, you sound tired, my friend. Yeah, that that was rough. Um, the 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 AUMF is actually one part of a much larger debate in constitutional law about the separation of war powers. Right? What are the what are the real big sort of competing camps over how the Constitution apportions war powers between? Congress on the one hand and the president on the other. Well, maybe we should should first situate that in the larger landscape of the, the universe of legal issues that surround the activities our military engages Indeed. in. You've got, a, you've got a whole cluster of activities under the international law heading, and, and under that heading you might find UN charter issues, have uh, law of war issues, human rights issues, etc. We're not talking about any of that. We're just talking about American domestic law. Now, under that broad umbrella, you've got what we call war powers issues, and that's distinct from uh, I'm laughing because Steve is distracting me while I'm trying to talk. <laughs> focus, focus. Um, under the under the war powers heading, you've got questions that boil down to the separation of powers, specifically in our system of divided government, where we have 
uh, separate and co-equal branches of the federal government in the form of the Congress, the executive, and the judiciary. Where are the lines drawn, especially between Congress and the executive branch, when it comes to deciding to use the military for certain purposes? That's what the war powers debate is really about. We're not talking about individual rights issues under the Constitution, right. for example. Although we will in other contexts. I mean, Certainly so. It's not that that's not important. Well, and, we, and we spoke last week, right, about the uh, Bin Ali Jabber decision about whether you can litigate a drone strike, right? So, so we don't mean to say this is the universe, but just from a pure sort of separation of powers perspective, right. how the war powers are divided and why the AUMF is such an important uh, fixture, right, in the contemporary war powers conversation. Exactly. So you had originally asked me, what are the, the major camps? Right? I had. Uh, long ago. Like well, 10 minutes ago. Uh, let's rewind the tape. We'll edit out all that stuff. <laughs> or not. Uh, I, don't, I don't have that kind of skill. As, as, our, as our Twitter followers have pointed out, you know, the sound quality might pass for um, amateur. We said in episode one that we were only <laughs> doing this on the theory that we could just sort of email a topic back and forth, show up, turn on the mics, and start recording. Yeah. That, that, that business model may, may only get us so far. Yeah, that's fine. That's, All right. That's far enough. So, so back, I, I keep distracting you. Back to where we started. All right. So would you agree that it's fair to say that the major camps are, uh, and I won't try to put labels on yeah. them, I'll just substantively describe them. There, there are those who would like to see a much more significant role for Congress mm -hmm. In this, meaning in part that there are things the executive branch does or would want to do that it, that it shouldn't be able to do constitutionally. Mm -hmm. That Congress should have more primacy in a larger array of situations than has been the case in recent years. Uh, and then there are those who have the opposite view that uh, at the maximum extreme would say mm -hmm. that the president should be able to use the military to do what he wants them when to do. When he thinks it's necessary and appropriate. Whenever in his judgment yeah. it's warranted. So it, it's about that sort of divide. So I agree. I would, if, you, if you'll forgive me for adding one more layer of, of, of complexity, I actually think there are three rough camps. Um, right, that you just sort of described too. Let me try to sort of reframe it in the, the way I tend to think about it, which is just me, right? Which is on one extreme, you have folks who believe that the president is really mostly just doing Congress's bidding, right? And that Congress carries a big stick when it comes to war powers, that Congress actually has a lot to say about what the president can do. That camp tends to believe that the president has relatively little unilateral power, right? That's the power to act without Congress in this space, and virtually no indefeasible power, right? Which is the power to act in the face of a statute restricting him. Is that fair? Yeah, and actually I think it's really important to get that issue you just said really front and center in yeah. this debate because part of the reason you get so much controversy here is people talk past one another. That's right. You've got two separate questions that arise under the war powers right. label. One is in the absence of a statutory constraint. Can the president go it alone? Yeah. In, so really, actually, you would say avoid where there's neither an express permission from Congress right. nor prohibition. Which, which, which our, our con law listeners might recognize as box two from Justice Jackson's completely overhyped, useless, tautological concurring opinion in the steel seizure case. They certainly don't answer anything, <laughs> do they? All right. So, that, so that's one extreme, right? right. Okay. Right, well, just to, to finish that thought, so there's there's the uh, there's the need to distinguish the situation in which the president uh, is does the president have unilateral authority to act when no one said anything one way or the other? Right. It's a very you may think there's broad presidential power in that category, and yet also think that 
at least in some areas, when Congress says, no, don't do this, no, you can't do that. The president loses. Right. So there, there's, as you say, there's there are many uh, positions on the dial. So, so this is where I'm going. So, so I see at one end folks who believe both that there's relatively little unilateral power and virtually zero indefeasible power. Mm-hmm. Okay. At the other extreme, right, are folks who believe that there is broad unilateral executive power in the war powers context and broad, indefeasible power. That's right. And I think there's a middle camp. And I think there's a middle camp because I believe myself to be an adherent to this middle camp of those who believe that the president actually has a fair amount of unilateral power. That is to say the power to act when Congress has not spoken, but very modest, indefeasible power. You know, I think we're probably similarly located, even though I bet that in particular fact patterns, we come out differently. But as a broad description, that to me, uh, sounds right. With and and the reason why that's a really important framing point, right, for this whole conversation is because the functional um, purpose and effect of a statute like the AUMF, right, is to avoid the indefeasibility argument, right, that, that when you have Congress authorizing the use of military force, the question is simply what is the limit of that authorization, right? That's why we spend so much time fighting about exactly what Congress has authorized versus a context where Congress has said nothing and perhaps even gone in the other direction where we get into the bigger fight about how much power the president has without Congress and in the face of Congress. That that It is certainly true that if you do have a relevant statutory authorization in AUMF or in the old days, declarations of war, if you have something explicit, it eliminates this topic. You, you can focus to on the extent that, right To the extent that the action in question falls within the scope right. of that authorization. Right. Always a scope question on the margins. By All the right. way, let's note that you were referring to indefeasible powers. Some listeners may be more familiar with the framing of a commander-in-chief override. Indeed. That was a language that was used a By lot. The Bush administration, especially, you although lot, yeah. although the the first time I think we saw that argument was in President Nixon's veto message of the War Powers Resolution in 1973. I just think that it's it's a very uh, it's a more accessible phrase because it really kind of captures the idea that Congress has done something, yep. and the president invoking Article Two specifically as Commander in Chief is saying, "I trump." So, that. so let me just be nerdy. Did I, I say I trump I, that? You, you, did, no. you did just say I trump that, and I want to go back and delete that from this episode. Um, so, so let me just <laughs> uh, just to defend my nerdistry for a second, right? Because I feel like half of what I do on this podcast defending is defending the indefensible, exactly, or at least in this case, defending the indefeasible. Um, <laughs> the the reason why I prefer the term indefeasible. Write that down. We got to title this podcast. Defending right? the indefeasible. Yeah. I, that is the title. All right. Um, The reason why I prefer the term indefeasible is because I actually can think of context in which the source of the indefeasibleness sure. is not the commander-in-chief sure, clause. Sure, no. Foreign affairs powers in general. Vesting clause, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, so... And, that's right. part- and, the, and the arguments almost always are best framed as combinations of well, those well, because of And that's partly because I also hold a very modest view of the substantive authority covered by the commander-in-chief clause as such. But that's a different yeah. fight for a different time. Good. All right. So the model historically... I, I, we're going to overgeneralize here for a second, but... The big wars, right, we declared. Um, and so Congress, of course, declares war against Germany and Japan and a whole bunch of other countries during World War II. Um, this is one of my favorite trivia questions, right? The last country against which the U.S. declared war turns out to be Romania. Thanks, Dracula. Um, <laughs> right. And that the real fights legally start happening after the World War II when we start to see aggressive military actions that don't have the same kind of clear, unambiguous statutory support. 
So it, it, part of the important context here is the, the shift in the international law concepts right. of, of uh, the relations between sovereigns when war occurs. Uh, there, there certainly was a long period that, for better or worse, uh, sovereigns, part of what you had with sovereignty was the ability to pursue certain claims by force of arms if you wanted to. Uh, and, and by formally issuing a declaration of war, you put other sovereigns on notice that these two nations have, have come against each other in warfare, and they are now in the position of either becoming co-belligerents or being neutrals. There were a lot of signaling functions that were deemed important in the world of transit transatlantic trade especially and and, and uh, mediterranean trade but we don't really declare war anymore no because we we uh certainly it, this is part and parcel of the the post world war ii move towards a world in which it's actually let's go back to kellogg Briand, right with due acknowledgement to the wonderful forthcoming book indeed uh from hathaway and shapiro on uh the 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 internationalists yeah the internationalists get your copy once it's out it's a terrific book that kind of uh restores due attention to the, the Kellogg-Briand Pact and the attempt to outlaw resort to armed force as an instrument of, of sovereign will. Um, here, the full title, The Internationalist, How a Radical Plan to Outlaw War Remade the World, um, published by Simon & Schuster. Very nice. Um, the point is, it is part of the 20th century innovation in international law to take the uh, the offensive resort to armed force off the table, uh, barring um, UN Security Council authorization, or some would argue maybe barring humanitarian disaster. But never mind that. We, just, we don't declare. We don't. We just, the bottom line: we don't declare war anymore. They were becoming defunct. You know, it was yeah. becoming increasingly rare even by the late uh, 18th century. So it's not really any big innovation to say that look, declarations of war have faded out. It's not just the United States doesn't use them. Nobody. In Steve, you or I, our lifetimes, nobody's declared a war and declarations of war have a certain archaicness to them. Uh, but it stays live in our debates because the the single most visible portion of Article One referring to the congressional role in this space uh, is is the uh, commitment of the authority to declare war to Congress. Uh, indeed, and so the the that authority has been understood since a series of cases from the early 1800s called the quasi-war cases that, Bobby, I think don't get nearly enough attention. Um, that authority has been understood to not just authorize Congress to declare war, but to authorize Congress to authorize, to, to, to I mean, empower the president to use force short of what the court in that time period called perfect war, right? Something called imperfect war. So would you agree that as a general proposition, knowing there are some exceptions to this, that most people who study this issue and work on this issue generally agree that at some level there's an offensive-defensive divide in which there's a, at least a residuum of unilateral presidential authority, indeed perhaps duty as the price cases hold it, uh, to use the armed forces without waiting to hear from Congress when the United States is in the defensive posture, when there's been invasion or armed attack yep. against us. Yep. Um, now, there's, there are notions of proportionality and necessity that right. go there with that. Right, there are details. That. Uh, but this, you can find evidence of this in the in the debates at the convention. No, no, I, I think I think most folks, and I can think of a couple of exceptions, yeah. but I think the general consensus is yes, the Constitution draws a line between defense and offense, right. and most of the fighting is just over where that line is, not whether right. it even exists. And there's two dimensions. If you you can almost think of this as a vertical and horizontal axis. There, there's a scale. The, of the Vicky the Vicky Mendoza hot crazy scale. 
I don't even have any idea what that is. Oh my god, this is the greatest episode of How I Met Your Mother ever. How did I not know this? I've seen- so so right, it's the the it's the it's the hot crazy scale right where you <laughs> plot um, a member of the opposite sex's attractiveness this versus seems dangerous craziness. to even go down this road. Well, no, but the great joke is that the the line through the chart plot is called the Vicky Mendoza line. And who is I? So I'm not so sure I want to know who is Vicky Mendoza. Vicky Mendoza is just one of you know Barney Neil okay. Patrick Harris's ex girlfriends. But the genius of it is, if you're a baseball fan, the Mendoza. The Mendoza. Line, oh, is that? That's the that's the whole joke. That's the uh, whole premise. Nice. That's the conceit. I should have known it would come back to baseball for you. It always comes back to baseball. All right. So so we agree there's a line. Yeah. You're it's, talking about a, a, a right. an so, access that is so not one actually thing, offensive. One thing to one thing to bear in mind is the possibility that. Uh, there are some roles and activities performed by the armed forces that uh, don't raise this question at all because they just somehow fall short of whatever category is in play here, the war category. We're going to hear more about this later on. Um, this is an easy notion to grasp. If you imagine uh, the commander-in-chief deciding to send uh, the Navy on a tour to do a port call in some particular location, it's all friendly. It's, it's peacetime. It's moving the armed forces. And no one ever— although, although if that location is Pyongyang, we might be having a different conversation. <laughs> but then it, wouldn't, it probably wouldn't be a peaceful port call. Uh, there are all sorts of things that the executive branch has the military do that no one seems to think is an intrusion on the prerogatives of Congress. So there's a scale of intensity. And once there's a violent act involved, once coercive power is really being used, and there's a spectrum there that goes from threat to actual use but on a small scale, that's where you start running into some interesting issues. Um, secondly, there's a different dimension that creates confusion. Uh, if we assume that there really is an offensive-defensive divide, there's the question of, well, when is it? Is it maybe defense sometimes, even though you're punching first? Right. By anticipatory. Right. And so, and so, uh, an easy way that you and I often frame the hypothetical this way when we're teaching this in class, right? It's um, for Pearl Harbor, right? At what point um, did the did, did FDR have constitutional authority to attack the Japanese planes? Everyone would agree, right, that certainly at the moment the first torpedo is dropped into Pearl Harbor, right, the president would have had the authority to defend. Yeah, that's not a hard case. That's not a hard case. The, but then you work that backwards, right. right? So I think most would agree that when the Japanese aircraft entered U.S. airspace, right, the president had the power to defend. All right, what about when they're over international water? What about when they're on the deck of the aircraft carrier? What about when the aircraft carriers are actually back in territorial Japanese waters, right? right. The, what about when the decision's being made? Right. What about when the decision's being debated? And seems Somewhere, to some, at some point along that spectrum, the trigger occurs for the president's defensive power, Right. right, to act even without Congress. Right. And this is the classic dilemma of marking the boundaries of anticipatory self-defense. Yep. yep. Okay. Now, we don't want to get lost in that, right? right. The point is just That's that— backdrop. The point is that this is the conversation that has, in many regards, dominated the last half-century of war powers discussions because there aren't that many formal authorizations. Instead, what we see is we see a lot of examples of the United States using military force in situations that don't quite look like World War II. And the question is, which of those situations should have had statutory authorization and which ones didn't need statutory authorization? Bobby, of course, the biggest example is, is Vietnam, where it depends on exactly when in, Viet- when in the conflict we're yeah. talking about. Yeah, Vietnam's a great teaching tool because uh, although everyone tends to immediately say, oh, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, in Vietnam, you have this many years buildup uh, or evolution of the military role of the United States. In Vietnam, early on, you've got, you know, fight financial and material support for French forces and for what become the the, the Saigon government forces. Later on, you've got uh, 
boots on the ground, but doing only advise and assist missions. This all sounds familiar. Uh, later on, there's there begins I've to be more of a presence. I've seen this movie yes. or these movies. And a lot of this buildup happens long before there's the Gulf of Tonkin incident and an AUMF, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, right. that came out of it. So you can, by walking through Vietnam, you get all these different shades, and you can kind of see the accumulating effect of the of the small, low-intensity things that let you get in without authorization early on and how they can put you in a position to where it's kind of too late. And this is sort of the lesson of Vietnam. Which Congress tries to incorporate and codify, right, in the War Powers Resolution of 1973. Um, the War Powers Resolution, Bobby, I think you and I would both agree is a deeply flawed um, effort to accomplish something that, you know, was probably laudable as a policy goal, but difficult to operationalize. Yeah, it's, I, there's so much to say about it, and we don't want to go and into And John Hart Ely has said most of it. I think it's enough to flag that it was only a statute. Mm -hmm. It was enacted over Nixon's veto, but it's a statute duly enacted nonetheless. Um, it has some features that are mainly just sort of, you might say, good government institutionalization of communications between the White House and Congress. Uh, the controversy really surrounds the, the element where for certain situations of real or anticipated hostilities where U.S. boots on the ground or U.S. forces are present, uh, you have 60 days before right, the you, clock. Yeah, the, you have 60 days to get out if Congress doesn't pass an authorization. Um, I mean, that's that's the heart, right? I mean, the, yeah. the, the heart of the War Powers Resolution is the 60-day, which sometimes could be a 90-day clock, right? At the and, and the theory is, although there's some debate about whether the War Powers Resolution could be read to acquiesce in the use of force during that period. I think folks are divided on this. Yeah, it says in its own terms, don't read it that way. But, but it's been read that way. <laughs> it's been read um, that way. Right. I think the key is everyone agrees that the purpose of that provision right. was at the end of the clock, the president right. has to stop. It was it was designed to be a fail-safe on, on the understandable theory that in the heat of the moment, some future Congress isn't going to have the guts to do it, so we'll just lash ourselves to the right. mast now. So for better or for worse, right, the war power resolution, I think, whether it's – there's a constitutional fight about it, right? Nixon vetoes it on two constitutional grounds. Mm -hmm. um, I, but I do think it has a huge policy impact on how the executive branch looks at uses of force. Well, and one thing it definitely does, and we saw this with the Libya intervention exactly. in 2011, is that clock, once it goes, begins generating speculation. It's a focal point for discussion and analysis. Journalists key on it. Members of Congress who want to criticize the White House will key on it. Academics like us will then weigh in on it. And then when the moment comes, you get 60 days – you have to put forward some kind of argument as to why you didn't withdraw if there wasn't an authorization. And the Obama administration really uh, took a bit of a beating, I would say. Uh, for, for, how it, for how it construed the yeah. term hostilities. That said, it's not like it stopped what it was doing. It right. Right on with the air campaign. Well, so, I mean, this is an important point, right, which is that it has proven for reasons that we can get into, I think, another time. It has proven very difficult to litigate the War Powers Resolution. Um, and so the reality is this is all about shaping the interbranch dynamic right. between Congress and That's the executive right. branch, which is going to be a bigger deal, obviously, when different parties are in control of those two branches exactly. than when, as is true today, you have one-party rule. Yep. Now, the, the point of it all, all that discussion about <laughs> defensive powers. Right, people are like, wait, we've been listening for 20 minutes and we still haven't gotten to the AUMF. Here's why all that was important. It's important context. If you have an AUMF or something you're currently doing as the executive branch, then all the debates we've just been reviewing go, right. go to the side. There are still other issues, but those all go to the side and you remove a lot of legal friction. And this, everybody, is why the 2001 AUMF is so important because it effectively moots what in any other context would have been an incredibly rich, 
ongoing back and forth debate about exactly how much authority the president has to attack, for example, ISIS in Syria, to attack we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the Syrian government's, you know, fighter plane as it was attacking Syrian defense forces, right? right. That would be a war powers resolution slash constitutional law debate if it weren't for how the AUMF from 2001 has been interpreted. Exactly. And this is true in general for, for all the activities conducted under color of that statute. And, so. and indeed, I mean, and so, and, and, you know, Kurt Bradley and Jack Goldsmith, right, wrote a very powerful article in the Harvard Law Review, I want to say about 2006, um, called Congressional Authorization, Authorization of the War on Terrorism, where they basically said, like, the, a, despite arguments that the Bush administration had been making to that point about inherent and unilateral executive power, right, they actually wrote an article setting forth how the AUMF could be read as a broad authorization for so much of the U.S. government's counterterrorism policies that's really come to light. No, no question that um, that's, we've had zero need in practice to try to figure out what the boundaries of Article II authority are in the post-9-11 counterterrorism environment. Now, as you know, one of my core <laughs> projects over time has been to try to point out to people that Article II is still back there. And if you repeal the AUMF... There's still some Article II authority. There's some, and, and we're going to talk at the end of our analysis, I think, here about what that might look like. But I, I, I want to lead into that point, and it actually goes with the chronology we want to follow here, by taking us first to the 1990s. It's not like al-Qaeda was discovered in September of 2001. The U.S. government was, at least in some circles uh, during the Clinton administration, very focused on this. Um, in indeed, the United States is currently prosecuting someone in a Guantanamo military commission <laughs> right. on the theory that we were already at war with al-Qaeda in October 2000 when the USS Cole was bombed. Right. Now, it's that to perhaps to some of you that sounds crazy, but it's not as crazy as it sounds when you bear in mind the following chronology. So uh, I think it's fair to say as a rough generalization that uh, analysts at CIA were well aware of bin Laden and the emergent al-Qaeda organization by the mid-90s and increasingly concerned with trying to do something about him. Um, prior to August or the, the fall of, of 1998, there was no real likelihood the Clinton administration was going to do anything directly involving the use of force or anything that looked military. There was lots of talk about what kind of covert action solutions might, uh, might make sense. A lot of the stuff's detailed in Steve Cole's Ghost Wars, or if you prefer, the 9-11 Commission Report. In any event, the East African embassy bombings of uh, August 1998 were a game changer. The simultaneous bombings uh, set the Clinton administration on a policy that embraced the overt use of military force. Uh, the one instance where they pulled the trigger was the dual attack once, uh, we talked about this last episode, the attack that was both an attempt to kill bin Laden and the rest of the Shura Council of Al-Qaeda at a meeting in Afghanistan using Tomahawk missiles uh, and then simultaneously firing a barrage of missiles as well at a Al-Qaeda-linked uh, manufacturing facility in the Sudan. Um, the, uh, they didn't, obviously, kill al uh, all the al-Qaeda senior leadership in that attack, although I, I think it was a matter of timing uh, that, was in, that reflected an important point here. The state of technology for carrying out that kind of attack at right. the time, if you weren't willing to you know, fly your own manned aircraft right up into that air airspace, uh, you could fire cruise missiles. Or you could try to find some proxy force who would do it for you. We try to sneak someone in on the ground. We did cruise missiles. It takes a long time to get from where they were fired in right. the sea all the way to Afghanistan. Um, they missed more or less then. 
And then for the next uh, year and a half, the Clinton administration didn't forswear trying again. They were prepared to use the military operation option again if they got sufficiently uh, reliable, actionable intelligence that the president would be comfortable acting on. But he, all of these were one-off, right? There was no systematic, organized campaign of boots on the ground. Well, so two different things you said there. I completely agreed that there were no boots on the ground. The whole point was to not put boots on the ground. Um, I don't agree that it was a, a one-off. My, my view is that the Clinton administration from fall 98 till the end of its time in office had an on-the-table commitment to using military force to, in a lethal way, to take out the al-Qaeda senior leadership. But they were just very cautious about when they'd pull the trigger and didn't have good intel and didn't have dr drones loitering about and, and, enable, and an ability uh, to act really quickly should they get intelligence. So if all that's true, then why in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks does the Bush administration not continue with the same legal authority? Why why go to Congress? If you go to Congress, you're vastly, if you go to Congress and get authority, right. you're vastly better off. And of course, the primary reason isn't, you know, law's not driving the train. This is about politics and policy. You want the ability to have, as, as as Hillary Clinton learned with the, her vote in favor of the Iraq invasion, right? If you're on paper as having voted to authorize a military activity, you can't, it's very hard later on to turn around and criticize it. It hems you in. Any executive branch, of any president of any party, when contemplating the use of force, if they can get Congress to commit to support it, you are protecting your political franks, no, and you're also that, you're right. also signaling strong unified government support to the troops and to the public, which marshals public opinion. But I think there's also one more piece of it, right, which is the boots on the ground, right? That that this this doesn't show up. There's no way to interpret the War Powers Resolution this way. There's no way to interpret Article Two this way. But I think there is a very sort of strong norm that boots on the ground in some kind of sustained operational capacity is something that requires Congress's buy-in, even if only for political reasons as opposed to for constitutional reasons. Well, this clearly was the legal theory the Obama administration articulated in connection with the Libya right. uh, Qaddafi uh, air campaign that there's a hugely salient difference in the degree of commitment. Between like standoff airstrikes. Yeah. It's, it's the idea that if you have boots on the ground, right. you, you have more at stake because it's, it's American lives and it's harder to extract yourself, more likely to escalate. And all that's true descriptively. Right. Uh, whether it's legally salient is an interesting question. All right. So President Bush and the White House send a draft AUMF to Congress, right, two days after the September 11th attacks on Thursday, September 13th. Um, what, what was so different about the draft from what Congress actually enacted? So let me preface it by saying that the Clinton administration, just to be clear, never asserted, it was uh, publicly at least, that it was a state of armed conflict. Right. It was America versus al-Qaeda in ongoing war. That was not part of the claim. They were just using Article II, National Self-Defense Authority, to conduct airstrikes in one actual instance and poised to conduct more later. The 9-11 attacks happened. Bush, I think the very day, was had issued a public statement declaring this this is a war. This the we, th we and, and and it was a national emergency. It's a national emergency for sure, and it's going. It's a state of armed conflict. So this was introducing a new type of policy and political and legal claim. At that point, only under his Article II authority. But of course, for the reasons we just said, you want to go to Congress if possible. And after 9/11, of course, Congress wants to do something. The White House. Uh, what we know from the public record is that the White House pitch was for a very broad authorization that would not be limited to language that gestured strictly to al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Well, we didn't even know at that point who was, I mean, well, I think, it wasn't I think publicly acknowledged. In, internally, it was certainly by the time this debate's going down, yeah. everyone in, inside and in Congress, everyone knows it's al-Qaeda. But, but, I mean, it's, it's, it's worth saying, though, because this is relevant to why the AUMF is written the way it is. President Bush doesn't formally and publicly acknowledge 
that it's al-Qaeda and the Taliban until a speech to the country on September 20th, right? So this matters because this is why the AUMF doesn't specifically name al-Qaeda, because it hadn't been public yet. So I have a slightly different view of this. So just to be clear what we're talking about, the draft and the final so, so version. Let, let, why don't I read, the, why don't I read the, the, the key provision and then we can... For the draft or the... I was going to read the final provision. Okay, yeah, great. Read, so this is what actually gets enacted. Right, so this is section 2A, and we actually will tweet this out because it's so important to this week's episode. I think we'll include the text with the, with the link. There you go. Um, so section 2A, uh, Gregory Johnson has a great article for BuzzFeed from a couple years ago about how these 60 words, right, were such a big deal. Um, I'm going to read it in its entirety. That the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11th or harbored such organizations or persons in order to prevent any future acts of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations, or persons. So, Bobby, the key, the most important thing for our listeners to understand and think about this language is the focus on those nations, organizations, or persons who were responsible for 9-11. That was not the original language in the Bush version. It was not the totality of it. That's right. The, the, okay, so here are a couple of points to make. One, the actual statute as enacted, as Steve just read, doesn't literally name al-Qaeda, doesn't literally name the Afghan Taliban, but it was very much drafted to describe them while preserving a bit of wiggle room in case after a few months the intelligence said, hey, you actually, you know, it turns out this is something slightly turns different. Turns out it was, it was, you know, the, the, the munchkins. Right. But the, the important point was the president, whoever the president is determined is the one that engaged in the 9-11 attacks. Them and anyone who's harboring them, because we assumed it was the Taliban, um, their the authority to attack them is delega- hereby delegated. Mm-hmm. Um, the original proposal would have encompassed all that exact language, but would have added a catch-all clause for other international terrorist organizations that threaten U.S. interest. In effect, right? In, in, in essence, I mean, so so we often talk about the the phrase the war on terror, or the war on terrorism. Um, I think it is fair to say that the original language submitted by the White House would have effectively asked Congress to authorize something like that. A war on international terrorist organizations Period. at large. Yeah. Right, uh, without regard to their role in or responsibility for no, 9-11. No, that's right. And, and so the idea was uh, we certainly want to use force against al-Qaeda and whoever is harboring them. But a- and, and the al-Qaeda example shows you that you have to use force in other similar cases. Now, who would that, you know, what are we talking about here? Could that be? Could it be, could it be Hamas, Hezbollah, right. Right. the Basque terrorists? I mean, who knows? That was the whole point is if you just say international terrorism, you could be off to the races in all sorts of directions. Some of them might seem crazy. And, and so I actually think it's worth highlighting, right? What to me is a relatively stunning assertion of congressional prerogative given the context, right, given that it was literally while 9-11 was, while, while Ground Zero was still burning, right, for Congress to actually push back and say, listen, yes, we're going to authorize this, right, we're going to vote to give you authority, but we're going to tie it to 9-11, right, that, you know, in retrospect, it, maybe it's not that big a deal. At the time, I think it was a pretty powerful statement from Congress. I think that there were many possibilities in that time period in terms of what the executive branch might then go do. I think with the benefit of hindsight and the passage of time, it it seems to me fairly clear that it was never likely, despite the broad rhetoric, that the administration was going to go off and do a lot of things 
unrelated. Now you might. I think a lot of listeners say like, "Oh, what about a rock?" Right. Well, so when a rock comes along, right. they that, go back and get another. They, statue. they go back and they get a statue for it. Um, the real the concern at the time was if you say you're going to go to go to war with whoever is involved in terrorism, you know, is this a blank check to attack all sorts of different groups? Um, it the the debate didn't it, end. Interesting language, blank check. Indeed. The. Uh, the debate didn't end, even though Congress, as you said, very, very boldly kind of pushed back and had a real almost today we would say pretty uncharacteristically sort of constraining approach. Right. Um, a week or so later, around the time. So President Bush gave this this really great address to a joint session of Congress. It was really one of his finer. He's not a man not known for his uh, public rhetoric, but he gave a very good address. Although, although in retrospect, given his successors. No, well. no, that's he's, he actually I think he got kind of a. Uh, a bad uh, break on that, but he gave a great yeah. speech. He uh, specifically said the famous words, you know, our war on terrorism begins, and I'm slightly paraphrasing here, begins with Al-Qaeda, it does not end there. Mm-hmm. So as a matter of asserting his authority, notwithstanding not having a delegation from Congress, and the, implicitly arguing that under Article 2, there's there's stuff we're going to do vis-a-vis other terrorist groups. And so that began to, the, the combination of these events uh, originated the concern, which wasn't articulated a lot then, but you can find examples of it. People saying, well, wait a minute, how broad is this right. war on terrorism going to be? Right. In actual practice, throughout all this time, the war on terrorism, in fact, has been the war with al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and associated forces. And so I want to get to that. But, it, but, I, yeah. but the, one, the, the one thing I would add, though, is it's worth stressing, because you mentioned the sort of the power of this sort of, you know, multi-branch moment, right? Yeah. It's worth stressing. I mean, so Congress passes one more very important statute in the early sort of weeks after 9-11, the Patriot Act. Okay. And then that's it, right? And then, I mean, with, you know, there are there are technical amendments to some of the Patriot Act stuff, right? There are, But until basically the Detainee Treatment Act in 2005, right? Yeah. The, the, at that point, for whatever reason, the interbranch dialogue goes away, and we really have a, a very powerful and controversial, right, four-year period yeah where everything is being tied either to those two statutes or to the president's inherent and, in some cases, indefeasible authority, whether it's military commissions, detainee interrogations, surveillance, right, all of this. Well, and I think we know why, right? So the memoirs that have come out and in the public statements reveal that there were fierce internal debates between camps of advisors and lawyers, some of whom favored very much as a strategic project uh, – Establishing examples of doing things unilaterally as much as possible to right. to rebuild the the discretion of the executive branches versus versus it. going to Congress yeah and getting the protection the the uh, the, the all in togetherness that I and, and the about. irony is it's possible that as a result of being more aggressive on the unilateral front they ended up with less power at the end of the day that's the thesis of Jack Goldsmith's terrific and, first and he's memoir right. and he's right yeah um, so that's the terror presidency yeah that's right um, all right so Bobby I want to suggest there that <clears throat> we read the text of the AUMF. Seems to me that there are four big questions that the text raises, um, and if I if I miss one, all right, jump in. First, who's the enemy, right? So you know, obviously, it's nations, persons, organizations responsible for 9/11 or for harboring such right. nations. So persons, who's in at the organizational level? So we all, everyone agrees, right? Al Qaeda, Afghan Taliban, period, right? Like that's there's no dispute about those two groups, right? Right. The question is, so the the original statute says nothing about associated forces, about affiliated groups. It just says those nations, persons, organizations responsible for 9-11 or harboring such nations, persons, organizations, period. So right off the bat, the question of organizational scope is present simply because the ones we're talking about as definitely in 
are themselves entities with uncertain organizational right. boundaries. Al-Qaeda Al originally is a consortium of separate organizations, right. which themselves each have fuzzy membership and boundaries. So listen, and so, so I agree with you. I mean, I agree with everybody, right? I think everybody. That there's no question if the day after the AUMF, right, Al-Qaeda changed its name to Bob. Um, How dare they? Right, or Jim. Right, um, much better. Right, they'd still be covered, right? That, that it's not the formality of being Al-Qaeda, right? It's the right. clarity that this group that we understand today, it's what Congress intended. Yeah, no, it's these people. But I would add that it was also true at that moment that you have Al-Qaeda cells and operatives all over the globe yep. in various places exercising a wide spectrum of degrees of uh, obedience back to the mothership, if you will, to the to the leadership. With different um, degrees of control and, 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 this and cooperation. Is, you know, you, you've already got this multiplicity of what could be described as associated forces or franchises or what have you. There already were boundary questions that had to be addressed from the very beginning. Right. It's not like there's this this team of guys who all carry the card and right. then others who have some separate relationship to them. All right, and so this opens the door to the big question today about how far this goes. Does it cover ISIS? Does it cover AQAP? Does it cover... Um, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb. I don't want to relitigate this question. I just want to show how they, yep, they, that's they stem where, from That's this. where it stems from. Um, all right. Second question. Who answers that first question? Right. That is to say, who's going to be the one who tells us who the enemy is under the AUMF? Now, the text of the AUMF, as you read, says it's who the, the president decides is responsible. It's, it's a pointer towards the president having discretion to set the boundaries, mm -hmm. at least um, according to Congress. Indeed. Now, that, that clearly seems to be correct as a first mover, right? That is to say that, that I think all can agree that the AOMF gives the initial determination authority to the president. Yeah. So is it reviewable? That's the question. So in the first round, we're, oh, this is, we're so dating ourselves, um, in the very, 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 very first round of the military detainee enemy combatant habeas litigation, the government actually argued for about a day and a half um, in the Yasser Hamdi case that, in fact, the president's determination was a non-reviewable, non-justiciable political question. Um, I actually think one of the quietly significant legal moments, right, for the early period is the Fourth Circuit at the time very conservative, right? They're, they're going to end up ruling with the government on almost all these questions, pushing back and saying, no, right, this is reviewable, at least in the context of habeas. It's, you know, it's, it's interesting because you've got these nuggets of justiciability-type rulings. Such, and I, I think you have the prize cases yep. where, where the majority said when reviewing Lincoln's determination that the situation with the Confederacy required resort to certain war-related measures. The blockade. In that case, the blockade, yes. Yep. Um, that, A, the defensive power rests with the president and specifically that the decision that the circumstances have risen to the point where that power is implicated, they say very clearly that belongs to the political branches. It's not a judicially manageable standard. It, it shades of our discussion last week about political question doctrine. So, so to your point, uh, for the Fourth Circuit to suggest that there's still a judicial role in policing the boundaries, that's a big deal. Uh, but again, as we said last week, once when you've got detainees, right, that's the thing. just as in the old days, you had a ship and somebody's got to decide who right. gets the money from selling like the the prize I mean, the prize cases. Exactly. The, the prize cases were admiralty cases. Absolutely. And you had to decide them. Judges couldn't duck it because someone had to get the money. And when you have an individual who's still there with you, yep. some decisions got to be made. And so at the to jump ahead to later rounds of yep. Guantanamo habeas litigation, you do have a small number of Guantanamo detainees who litigated in habeas who were neither Afghan Taliban alleged to be Afghan Taliban, nor Al-Qaeda. Yeah, there were the Uyghurs. That's, that's one example. And they, and, they were, and they were determined by a judge ultimately to, in Parhat v. Gates uh, not to be part of this arrangement or not to be within the scope of the AMF. 
And, but then you have others, and I think the example that I have in mind comes from the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, mm-hmm. where the court considered the question, is the IMU sufficiently associated with, with activities that the Taliban and al-Qaeda are engaged in? And they said, yes, that they're fighting in Afghanistan, they're an associated force, and that's in. But the judges were deciding that, not just saying, hey, we read here that the court, the government wants them in, so therefore they're in. So this, I mean, this is my point, right, that, that the statute clearly designates the president as the first mover, but that at least— Today, it's quite clear that the courts are of the view that they have authority to review the president's initial determination, at least in the habeas context, perhaps in other contexts as well. I would say def- uh, clearly in the habeas context, and, and, I, and I'm skeptical there are other contexts that the courts are willing to jump in on. Mil- at least no, we haven't seen Military like commission appeals. Okay. No. Okay. Any situation where the person's in your power, right. it's a question of your power to hold them. Right. And we'll see if we'll see if we ever get a, a, yeah. a case that, on the merits in, in outside the context. All right. Um, third question. Right. Where is force authorized? Right. So the AOMF says nothing about geography. That's right. Um, obviously, it's not just about Afghanistan and the Fatah. Right. The the tribal region along the. I Afghanistan think it's obvious, border. but apparently a lot of people don't think that's obvious. Well, no, no. Clearly, well, people who think that's all there was. I think the territorial dispute is much more about whether it applies to. Domestically, right. So, so to me, the real gravamen of the territory dispute is not whether if Osama bin Laden is in eastern Yemen, the AUMF allows us to go and use force against him there. I don't think that's a that's a. It's eastern Kentucky. You're it's eastern about. Kentucky. I'm worried about. So I, I think you sound very reasonable when you say that. I oh no! Yes, clearly <laughs> something new and different. <laughs> so I think it's it's very easy to understand how you may want a rule of clear statement in order for the types of authorities associated with NAMF to be understood to apply equally or even partially inside the United States. That's that's very reasonable. Um, what's interesting is that there clearly are, notwithstanding what you said, there, there are other people yes. who very much think that what has been authorized is somehow geographically uh, circumscribed to Afghanistan. I actually think a lot of those people would not extend it to Pakistan and the Fatah region. So I, I guess I'm of the view that just as declarations of war historically were not geographic, right? When we yeah. declared war against Germany, yeah. that, didn't, that didn't mean that we needed a separate authorization to use force against them in France. Right. Now, a lot of people will be listening to this thinking like, well, wait a minute, now you're saying therefore you can launch drone strikes in Paris. No, 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 no. There are other bodies of law that control the intervention into. Hence my fourth question. Uh, which is? What role for international humanitarian oh. law? It's like I planned it. Well, Look you, what I, happens when we outline well, let me. Let me modify that a little bit and say it's it, here I'm mainly concerned not so much with international humanitarian right. law but I'm human concerned with the UN charter and, no, and not, the, well, no yeah not all of neither it. of those but all of it well yeah but the, in the first instance this question of what is it that keeps the United States from being seen to be right. claiming the authority to roam where it wills in the world the same thing that it always does the, the UN charter rules the USAID Bellum rules the protection of sovereignty and the prohibition on just uh uh, the prohibition on using force in the territory of others right. absent certain circumstances. So, so to me, Bobby, those are the four big questions, right? Who is the enemy? Who decides that question? Where is force authorized and what role for, I'll just say, international law in general, right, in constraining yeah, sure. the UMF, right? Okay. That those are the big ticket yep. items. All right. So why don't we pivot to what's been decided, Good. right? The, that what, what of that has been answered? Yes. Um, so I think I can say without mm, – yes, I think I can say this. The Supreme Court has – interpreted the AUMF exactly once, right? Um, I mean, they've referred to it in other cases. Right, that in the the Yasser Hamdi, not Hamdan case in 2004, we get the one real sort of meaningful interpretation 
of the AOMF by the Supreme Court. That's right. And and although Justice O'Connor's opinion is a plurality opinion, she's joined by some combination of Justice Thomas or Justices Souter and Ginsburg on all of the relevant points. So I think we can say the Supreme Court has held. Oh, I certainly think so. Right? Um, a bunch of things about the AUMF. But Bobby, maybe less than you might think. Well, it's, what's interesting is it's often depicted as a decision like, oh, that's the case where the government lost. They, they lost on the, on the individual rights issue, the Fifth Amendment due process issues about what kind of screening procedures ought to be used to test the false positive claim right. that Yasser Hamdi made, saying, hey, I, I wasn't, I well, wasn't really. Up, right? Yasser Hamdi, just so everyone knows, U.S. citizen, right? Because born in Louisiana. Because he was born in Louisiana on my first birthday. Um, huh. Yasser Hamdi, Jack Goldsmith, Derek Jinks, and I all share a birthday. How, that's, how, that, that, that's an awesome trivia fact. Um, I learned two of those from Jack Goldsmith's first book, The Terror yeah. Presidency, where he talks about going to visit oh, yeah, Hamdi on his, his, birthday. his 40th yeah, birthday. You're right about that. Um, so so Hamdi is a U.S. citizen picked up in Afghanistan, picked up by the Northern Alliance, not by the U.S. military, mm-hmm. um, right at a time when we were paying bounties to any group to turn over suspected Afghan Taliban or al-Qaeda fighters. The Northern Alliance says, oh, this guy... Totally Taliban. Well, if they said it with that voice, I'd be skeptical too, but I'd bet it wasn't quite like that. Okay, the only evidence the government ever submitted was an affidavit from the Undersecretary of Defense for, you know, detainee whatever affairs, right? So, well, Would you agree that there were Taliban fighters? Y- yes, there were Taliban fighters. And some of them may have been captured by the Northern Alliance, and yes. some of them may have been people like Hamdi. I mean, yes, it's not, but would, it's not, yes, but would you agree that the Northern Alliance also probably, to collect their bounty, turned Indeed. over some people who were not... Indeed, adi- which is why I think the court was right to say that a U.S. citizen should have an opportunity to make their claim. I'm doubtful he would have succeeded, but he should have had a chance. Really? What happened to Hamdi when he went back to the district court and, and the, got a hearing? The government sent him packing because they didn't want to further create any precedent. Right, because they were worried they would lose. They they were worried he was going to apply to everybody. Uh, and it would turn into be uh, okay. So back to back okay. to our story. So so Hamdi is sent to Guantanamo because at the time they didn't they and he did not realize he was a citizen. Right. Um, then the government quickly realizes, holy Toledo, this guy was born in Louisiana. Get him out of Guantanamo. Don't you love to imagine that this somehow came out like they're in the booth and an interrogator talking with this person through a translator about um, you know where were you born? And he just sort of mentions like well, I was born in actually in Louisiana. I don't think Hamdi knew. Or maybe he didn't know. Maybe no, he came no, no, out no. diplomatic. No, 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 no. They found out. So so some random like functionary yeah. finds out that Hamdi was born in Louisiana and all hell breaks is like yeah. wait we have to get him out of here yeah, and they're like get him out of here he's going to taint Guantanamo right so they sent yeah. him to Virginia that's the habeas litigation that leads to Hamdi now Bobby you're right I think to frame the Hamdi decision as a mixed bag right yeah. but in context I mean keep in mind everyone was surprised that the court even granted cert in Hamdi um, right and then to rule against the government at all was a pretty powerful statement in 2004 now in retrospect yeah. The parts the government won turned out to be more important than the parts they lost. I certainly think so. I, I if Maybe this is hindsight talking, but if you told me that you could have an outcome where the court's going to decide this, it's a citizen. They're going to decide it. They're going to recognize he has habeas rights. They're going to reach the merits on the procedural due process question. They're going to say he's entitled to more of a screening process. But on the other hand, the court is going to endorse the proposition that even though they're not being held as POWs, they nonetheless can be, as unlawful enemy combatants, held for the duration of hostilities, at least when you're talking about Afghanistan combat captures. Well, but I think a, you would take that in a heartbeat. Well, so this is the key. So, so the key to Hamdi is understanding exactly how specific the holding is, right? And the holding is that on the facts as alleged by the government, which is to say, you know, fighting on behalf of the Afghan Taliban in an active combat theater in Afghanistan, on those specific facts, right, Justice O'Connor says, we believe the AUMF authorizes the detention of Hamdi 
even even though he's a U.S. citizen, and even though he's not being held as a POW. Okay. Now, um, critically, though, right? Why? I mean, so there's a statute called the Non-Detention Act, which I'm very partial to because I wrote my first law review paper oh, about the Non-Detention Act. Your first, your first piece. Oh, way back when. Um, right. The Non-Detention Act says you can't detain a U.S. citizen except pursuant to an act of Congress. Right. So how does Justice O'Connor find in the AUMF? Um, the kind of authorization from Congress that that, that non-detention act seems to contemplate. Because it would be crazy to interpret an authorization to use military force as not including. And why power. would it be? And why would it be crazy? Where where? Because wh- the laws and customs of warfare, there we go. Okay. as embodied in the laws of war, had long centuries since in confirmed that of course you can. Now you know I have a view on this. It's not I, so yeah. much that they they established that you could. It's that you always had that option. The laws of war have never tried to take away the option of detaining for the duration of hostilities but the, the key for, to, right. for combatants. But the key to me, right, is that to get to detention of Hamdi, she interprets the AUMF to incorporate, right, the laws of war such as they are. With the one nuance I would add, she, strictly speaking, wasn't faced with the possibility of applying a constraint from the law of war. She's saying, look, if this is permitted under the laws of war. This must be inferred. That's and, fine. My and po- I think that's entirely traditional for the U.S. government to uh, look to the AOMFs and declarations as being informed by, well, what is customary No, no, I, I agree. My point is just that when the D.C. Circuit in 2010 in Albahani Right says, oh no no, we don't look to the laws of war at all in yeah, trying to interpret. That's, the that's clearly inconsistent with you know our long tradition. And Hamdi, right? I mean, my, and, and the what the Supreme. Okay, anyway, yeah, right. so, I, I, we're in agreement. So Hamdi settles right that the AUMF covers military detention, and I would say a fortiori, tar, you know, uses of force, yeah. right, in the active combat theater of Afghanistan. I'm not sure I would put it as a fortiori because I'm not sure that the priorities are that way. But I completely agree that it says, look, there's at least this one place. And they, they go out of their way to right. say, we're not talking about any other circumstance right now. Period. Afghanistan is a place where the circumstances clearly rise to the level of armed conflict. Right. The laws of war are applicable. This sort of thing is completely consistent with that. Therefore, it's okay. Now go give him a hearing. And that is the last word of the Supreme Court on the subject. And that was June 28, 2004. Yeah. Yep. So part of the problem with the AUMF is that we are here over 13 years later, and there has not been a subsequent meaningful construction by the Supreme Court. There's been lots of uh, D.C. Circuit law. Now, some of this, obviously, Bobby, gets um, aided by Congress's only other intervention, right, which is the detention authority provisions of the fiscal year 2012 National Defense Authorization Act, how big a deal are those? I mean, well, how, how much should we care about my, those? My view is a little bit cynical. So you, what you have in the interim between 2004 and Hamdi and uh, the eventual late 2011 creation of a statute that actually says something about detention finally. Now, some listeners may be saying, wait a minute, there were two Military Commissions Act in between. <laughs> uh, those were about prosecution of detainees, not about the fact of detention underlying uh, for, for people who are not being prosecuted. So uh, what happens in between? Well, you have uh, you have four, four years, years of, of fighting. Uh, four over, years of fighting over, over whether there will be habeas litigation for the non-citizens okay. at Guantanamo. And then you get, you know, four, four years, years of following. Of habeas, yeah, exactly. So what happens in those cases? Well, you have another thing that happens. You have a change of administration. So in, in the period at issue here, you find out that at least at the political leadership level, both political parties are more than happy to sustain roughly the same claim, that we can we are in an armed conflict with al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and some to-be-defined set of associated forces. This includes detention authority, and they litigate on this basis. And the losses that follow 
are mostly questioned. The lo- those cases that are lost in habeas by the government are lost on evidentiary grounds, uh, with the exception of the Uyghurs. Um, with the exception of the Uyghurs. But, but in those cases where the government is able to come forward with enough evidence, and we'll set aside, there's all kinds of debates about whether they're being held to enough of a standard, but setting that Short aside. Short version, I think the answer is absolutely not. And, and I think the answer is yes. Right. The, so there you go. The The point, though, is that the court agrees that if you have enough evidence, you certainly still can detain these people. But the set of people that they're dealing with, it's all this bucket of 2007 and earlier detainees. and Picked at, up, in, for the most part, with a couple of exceptions, yeah. picked up in Afghanistan or, or the tribal areas of Pakistan. You, you, de- you have a lot that are picked up in or near the Afghan combat zone, others who are picked up elsewhere, but they can be tied back to having been there. And organizationally, going back to your question about organizations, they all tie back to earlier, less complex iterations of al-Qaeda or to the Taliban or to groups that are associated forces. But these are associated forces, Steve, that are in the battle zone in Afghanistan engaging in uh, the insurgency. So they don't really represent the complexity that's emerging in the field at the same time as relatively loosely tied in uh, al-Qaeda franchises emerge, as as groups like al-Shabaab flirt with becoming part of the al-Qaeda universe. Right. The litigation, a, the litigation is really about what might be the easiest cases. Absolutely. That's right. my point. And you and I might disagree about how easy they are, but we agree right. that they were easier compared to the harder right. ones. Right. And so what you have is this simultaneous, uh, I, I wrote in this piece in Michigan Law Review, that there was the appearance of equilibrium because it seemed like the parties agreed. You know, Barack Obama, George Bush taking the same positions. Right. And I wrote a piece in the Seton Hall Law Review saying that the D.C. Circuit completely screwed up their jurisprudence in the process. But but you know, but you know, they uh, so the president. No, but, but we agree that, but we agree yeah. on what happened, and this all culminates, right? Well, let, let me close out the point, though. It's not just that the parties agree; the courts consistently produce habeas opinions that have the effect of blessing this arrangement. No, that's my point. But it doesn't match up with the increasingly complex set of circumstances that, in the real th- world. No, that's my point, right? That yeah. that the habeas litigation is increasingly solving the last year's problem. Exactly. And, and, and so what are the big fish that are not represented in the Guantanamo habeas litigation? Well, you don't have AQAP detainees. You don't have Islamic State detainees. And you certainly don't have one-off uh, isolated lone wolves, or at least you don't have people that the government claims they can detain, even though they don't have organizational affiliation. I would add two more things to that. That's exactly right. The two other things you don't have is you don't have any more U.S. persons. Right. So so after Hamdi, Jose Padilla and Ali Almari, right, there's no additional effort to hold people who are either U.S. citizens or who are lawfully present in the U.S. at the time of their capture, which I think would have been a very important um, lever for perhaps narrowing or construing the AUMF. And the second thing you don't have is you don't have um, any real fleshing out. Right. Of the perpetual authority concern, right? O'Connor, Justice O'Connor says in Hamdi um, that the understanding of detention authority on which her whole analysis is predicated, quote, might unravel, unquote, in a world in which conflicts are in fact perpetual. Now, there was a little bit on this relatively recently when President Obama. I think had his uh, uh, declare victory moment for yeah. Afghanistan. You know, combat operations are over. I mean, it was sadly quite strikingly similar to, to President Bush's moment on on the deck of the, the Lincoln, talking about having the, the conflict in Iraq being over. For for a variety of reasons, the president said, "Look, we, we're now done with combat operations in Afghanistan." This predictably set off litigation, revised habeas litigation, saying, "Ah, we've reached that moment where the war in Afghanistan's ended. Right. At least release the Taliban guys." Right. And the government had to come into court and say. 
right? Well, don't confuse rhetoric with what actually is happening on the ground. Of course, combat's right. still going He's on. He's just the president. What does he know? <laughs> right. Um, Anyways, right. but the, you would ask me w- about the legislation. Right. So Congress comes in in late 2011 and says, yes, let's have a statute that says all these things that the courts and the executive branch have, have already, already said. said. Right. So so the, the key for everyone to understand about the fiscal year 2012 National Defense Authorization Act is that it does two different things, right, that I think are worth stressing both how powerful and how narrow they are, okay? The first thing it does is it codifies what to that point had been the law of detention in the D.C. Circuit. Yes. But, Bobby, only as applied to non-U.S. persons, right? That is right. to say— Citizens are not included. In fact, nor- there was a big fight over that, and they punted. Well, and so I'm getting there, right? So so there's a provision called the Feinstein Amendment, right, which specifically says we are preserving the status quo for U.S. Right. persons. They're totally indeterminate. Well, this was the brilliant part, right? So everyone called me and you at the same time and was like, hey, so does this mean that they're banning detention of you? We're like, no. So they're authorizing it? No. no. So what are they doing? They're, they're pre- not touching it. They're not touching it. They're right. They're saying they're preventing you from citing this statute as cutting one way Correct. or the other. All right. So that's so so it codifies the law as applied to non-U.S. persons. Big thing number one. Yep. While while bracketing U.S. persons. Big thing number two. It says it's only about detention. Right. It says we're talking about detention and only detention. And so you know I don't know where we would go if someone if someone tried to argue that the NDAA was relevant to construing the source of the scope of the AUMF in a targeting context. You know, it's kind of like the War Powers Resolution. Yeah. It says, don't cite me for this proposition. But it'll be cited but for that proposition. Absolutely. And, and, and frankly, it probably should be because it's a little a little bit much. All right. So this is, I think that's the history, right? I mean, yeah. and then, so then we, so, so round about 2013, 2014, Right, there starts to be a really concerted push in the human rights and civil liberties community to get Congress to consider repealing the AUMF. Um, there are proposals at least to amend it, right, to at least define associated forces, right, that is to say those additional groups beyond Al Qaeda and the Taliban who can be covered, um, maybe to impose a sunset. Right, so that Congress at least has to revisit on a periodic basis. Well, you mentioned a context point for this. Part yeah. of what's driving this, because it wasn't just coming from the civil liberties community and the human rights community. Uh, there are those of us who aren't necessarily always associated with those <laughs> communities who were also saying it's past time to do this, yep. in part because, as I mentioned a moment ago, the, the core al-Qaeda and, and core Afghan Taliban, yes, still there, but the, the thrust of the fight by 2013-14 was really becoming a QAP, al-Shabaab, Bob, uh, the emerging Islamic State, which had been the Al Qaeda in Iraq, but also, I mean, but, so let, let me well, let me, let me finish this yeah. point. And and the hook for it all, the administration, the Obama administration said, look, they're all still covered. The 2001 AMF reaches them all because they're just extensions. You either count them as extensions of Al Qaeda as such, or they're associated forces. And and I and others who aren't necessarily associated with those communities thought that this was insufficiently transparent for a rule of law democracy, and we should have clarity because it wasn't clear who the Pentagon even categorized right. as being in or out. No, right. So, so, so in addition to the, the proposals I mentioned, right, there were proposals to require the government to publish the list of associated forces, right, to notify Congress anytime a new group was so identified. Right. You know, all these things. And all of it, I think, and, and I actually think we were moving towards some degree of consensus. Yeah, we're getting pretty close. Um, and, then, and then the situation with the Islamic State blew up. Right. And I think it's very funny to look back on on the early interventions, which were airstrike interventions to prevent humanitarian disasters, like the um, the, the situation on— Mount it? Yazidi. Mount Yazidi. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Um, the Yazidis. The Yazidis on—oh, I'm drawing a blank. Oh, gosh. As are you. Yeah, I really Never. Am. It's not worth distracting ourselves over it. Uh, Sinjar. Mount Sinjar. Um, the early public statements from the Obama administration suggested that this was being done under Article Two authority, right. which was— 
coming on the heels a few years after the the Libyan intervention, which had been also premised on Article 3. And which had left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. Absolutely. Well, because the argument had been, look, as long as you're not putting boots on the ground, right. then you're even if it's high-intensity airstrikes, you're, you're not really talking the war powers debate because it's not sufficiently risky for the United States. Well, and, and, and I think, I mean, but I think this is part of where the momentum for the repeal of the AUMF movement came from, right? That by 2013, 2014, we didn't have ground troops of the degree to which we had, right, in the better part of the first decade of the 21st century, right? That, that our operations against al-Qaeda and its remaining leadership had come to resemble more of what you described about the late 90s, right? The sort of, not one-off, but the, right. the discrete strikes as opposed to the campaign And of indeed, there were a lot of Obama administration signals that let's we should move to that model if possible. Right. Um, the most important example of this was Jay Johnson's yep. speech at the Oxford Union, yep. where he said, we're not there yet, but we're getting, we're getting closer, and there will come a time when al-Qaeda has been sufficiently degraded, we can right. say the war with al-Qaeda is over. And, he, and then he paused and said, at that point, criminal law the enforcement— point. It, 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 the tools on the table at that point will be criminal law enforcement and intelligence tools as always. And self-defense. But, and then a critical pause. And they mentioned, of course, there's always, in the event of imminent threats, there's always uh, military options. But then ISIS blew up. Right. And, 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 and I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't emphasize enough how much this conversation turned, right, when the news of the rise of the Islamic State really hit. Well, it just it destroyed all the momentum that suggested that okay things were somehow going to revert to some mid nineties, uh, you know, variation of the world. And and if I may, I mean, so so up to that point, right, the real cost of repealing the AUMF had been closing Guantanamo, right, right which had been President Obama's goal. But anyway. now there was something the U.S. forces were doing under color of the AUMF because the administration fairly quickly moved away from just citing Article Two and and introduced the idea that well maybe both. The 2001 AUMF and the 2002 AUMF covered the Islamic State. Right. Just really quickly, right? The theory being that vis-a-vis the 2001 AUMF, ISIS was a sort of derivative or at least successor group to al-Qaeda. You said it's Bob or Jim to al-Qaeda. Right. It was uh, the change of al-Qaeda in Iraq to a And vis-a-vis the 2002 Iraq AUMF, that insofar as ISIS was posing a threat to the government of Iraq. Yeah, it's still Iraq. It's yeah. still Iraq. Which always struck me as a particularly, uh, that one strikes me as a weak argument. Uh, my initial reaction, I'll freely confess, when I first heard the ISIS is is simply part of the 2001 AMF. I think I blogged something. The fact that that's ridiculous because they they had very publicly kind of broken broken ways. Um, but over time, I came to appreciate that that actually that's that's not quite fair. I mean, I certainly wouldn't have said that um, if the United States hadn't left militarily from Iraq, right. and if we'd stayed in there the whole time, the fact that AQI changed its name to ISIS would not have cut any ice with me. It's the fact that two years had gone by where we weren't engaged, which kind of presents, a, it actually presents a, a genuinely difficult line drawing question. D- is there really some termination of the authority? Was it was it day 363? Was well, so, it day 700? Right. But so this is it? the thing. So, so to me, there are two different layers to the ISIS debate, right? The first is um, how plausible is the argument that it's actually covered by the two 2001 AUMF. We've talked about this before on the podcast. I think you are now more convinced by that argument than I am. I don't think that argument is at all frivolous, sure. um, right? But, but I, I think good faith disagreement is very possible on that. Okay. Um, but the second layer is whatever the answer to that question is, doesn't it underscore how much better off we would be from a pure public policy perspective exactly. if Congress re-entered the fray and clarified not just how, if at all, ISIS is covered, but going forward, how are we going to deal with the next ISIS? So here's the funny thing. Uh, it seems like everyone in Congress and in the White House in the Obama years was saying, yeah, let's ref- let's say, let's have a statute that updates the AMF and says ISIS is covered. No one, no one 
really wants to resist that. So why didn't it happen? So I think the problem is that each side had sticking points. Yeah. Right? They wanted something extra. They right. didn't want to just do that. Right. So for example, the Democratic proposals tended to want to include both a repeal of the AUMF and a replacement with an ISIS-specific or at least you know more limited yeah. one. They wanted a sunset and they wanted to some, some of the proposals, not all of them, right. wanted a, a, a limitation on boots on the ground. Right. Which I think was the real poison pill in the whole deal. Um, I think the I think the sunset was was much more controversial than it should have been. Yeah, I, I, I there's something to that. And then where and and, and on the other side, there are others a whole spectrum of opinions that don't want any change at all, uh, and certainly didn't want any statements about uh, you know we we don't want any. It's it's they didn't want that change right. at all. But so and and we, so so all of this is why even though you had I think at one point twenty six some odd different competing proposals, yeah. right, including one drafted by the White House and submitted to Congress, yeah. um, nothing comes out of Congress. Right. And the, the other thing we we'd be fools if we didn't say this. And of course, it mattered hugely that whatever operations America was gonna conduct. Were being conducted. Right. There was no forcing function. Right. There were no detainees. There were no habeas given, cases to lose. There, no, no court. There was no admiralty proceeding or habeas right. proceeding where a judge was going to say, "Nope, stop operations." And so, and so we have this. We have, I think, what you and I agree is the sort of undesirable status quo where inertia is doing all the work. Right. Where the AUMF is doing what the government needs it to do, where the government is not hamstrung in the operations it wants to undertake, so Congress is not impelled to act. Right, and where everyone accepts the sort of imperfect alternative. Right. And the White House is neither the Obama nor the Trump White House wants to spend any of its limited capital on trying to get people to do something that would be a very good government right. thing to do, but won't affect operations. And the irony of all of this to me is that this is exactly the inertia problem that the War Powers Resolution was in theory designed to avoid. And the problem is, is that because the AUMF has language that can be I don't want to say adapted, but construed yeah. to encompass groups like ISIS, right? We get this sort of perpetual authorization for the use of force. Right. I, I think that's that's about the size of it. And it doesn't mean that anything goes. The fact that you have these sort of this daisy chain of extending organizations doesn't mean that everyone else is in as well. No, but but I mean, but I am nervous, and, and as as usually as usual, Bobby, I think I'm more nervous than you are that an executive. Um, less committed to the rule of law than you or I might like him or her to be, mm. right, could use the AUMF as a foil for going after groups with a far more dubious connection to al-Qaeda than ISIS. Right. And, and what you'll especially want to look out for here, you're still within the Sunni Salafist extremist tradition, but not actually organizationally connected in any way to al-Qaeda right. or the Taliban. I mean, so th lone th wolves think or, like or the, independent or groups. Like, think like the Muslim Brotherhood, right? Uh, well, okay, but that, that doesn't... It, there are many Muslim Brotherhood yeah. organizations, but I, I think what you, I'm not so worried about some outrageously broad thing where you're actually using military force against groups that aren't necessarily engaged in violence. I think what we're talking no, about no, here no, is no, but violence not against us. Uh, what I'm worried about right. is what I'm worried about is the AOMF becoming. Uh, let me let me be as plain as I can. I'm worried about the AOMF being interpreted to have the effect of the very text that the Bush administration submitted and Congress rejected. Oh, and see, I'm saying that you don't have to worry about that because that text really was broad. It, it broke the connection to al-Qaeda and the Taliban altogether. I think that what you do have to worry about with the associated forces concept as time goes by is more and more very closely theologically and policy and, and in social network tied 
groups that are not actually part and parcel of the Al-Qaeda network getting reached. But I don't think you have to worry about, say, uh, some Shiite extremist group or, or some sort of splinter IRA group. Yeah, or I'm, not, I'm not sure about that because if you're not going to have detainees who provoke habeas litigation, if you're not going to have Congress impelled to push back, I don't know why a White House looking for a you know, legal leg to stand on and when they have a group that they want to be able to use force against wouldn't point to the AUMF. So, of course, they can point to it all they want. The question is, would it be plausible? It's not logically plausible to try to extend the AUMF beyond the, if you lose the nexus with Al-Qaeda. Right, but some would say we have already done that. And this is my concern. Right? Okay, that, well, I, I know some would say that, but like, where's the really serious example of that? If, if you're a serious example, if the extreme case is the Islamic State, uh, we just said a moment ago, you can have good faith disagreement about it, but it's not crazy to extend it. That, that used to be Al-Qaeda in Iraq. No, no, but I, I'd prefer... And I think you would too, Congress to just sort of moot this issue, right? By, of course. Okay. Um, I'm just saying it's the, the outer boundaries of how the AUMF might get distorted or not. That's fine. But so there's, there's, a, there's a statistic that I like to teach, which I think surprises a lot of folks, although not everybody, about the AUMF. So the Congressional Research Service issued a very short report last summer. And I don't know how much this has changed in the last year. But documenting 37 different military operations. And I don't mean like one like strike. I mean 37 different campaigns in 14 different countries where the formal legal justification was the AUMF. But what, okay, so A, what's inherently wrong with that? B, it's a lot. some of the, what's the measure of how many, what's the right number? Eight countries? No, 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 listen, I'm not saying that there's a bright, uh, listen, we agree that there's no bright line. My yeah. point is that, my point, which I think you don't disagree with, is we have long passed the point where it is institutionally responsible to leave the statute sitting on the books on Sure, no, we don't disagree with that. But I want to say something else about that data, though. A, what's the right number? B, some of the examples there are – some people might hear that and say, oh, so we've done drone strikes in 14 different countries. That's not what people. Yeah, no. no, some some of that is is below the spectrum of intensity because it's advice and assistance for an internal defense activity that, that happens to be – you know, under color of the AMF, but that right. doesn't mean it's the sort of thing that could not have been done but for the AMF. All right, so 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 let's see if we can wrap up because I, I think yeah, we're probably we're, we're well past where we lost everybody, right? No um, and we still have to talk about my my triviality for this week, which is you know wh who's the next Game of Thrones character to die? Oh, I want to get to that. Let's quickly wrap Valar Margulis. All men must die. Um, <laughs> Wait. Oh, that could be the title of the episode. Ooh. Um, or all AUMFs must die. Um, uh, that's not where I was going with it. <laughs> so um, the short version is, right, it seems to me the AUMF is still on the books. Um, it may or may not cover ISIS, right? Re there's reasonable grounds for disagreement about that. Um, it's not going anywhere, right? There are concerns that Congress ought to update it. Um, Congress shows no inclination to do so. And so when we come back on this podcast to uses of force by the U.S. in Syria, or in Yemen, or in Iraq, or in Pakistan, right? And we talk about how strong the AUMF justification is, we're back to the same series of questions about just how far does the text of the AUMF stretch substantively and geographically. I think it's totally right. And I want to conclude by coming back to my observation that prior to the AMF's existence, in between 98 and 2000, um, you had one instance where we did use large intensity, you know, massive cruise missile barrage, use of force against al-Qaeda, with no claim of there being an AUMF. Um, the national self-defense model is always going to be there. I mentioned a moment ago that Jay Johnson gave this speech where he talked about how even in a post-AMF world, we would always fall back in the in, when faced with the sufficient threat. We can and will use force against it. You take the AMF, AUMF off the table. If there's a situation where the practical policy significance is such that the White House wants to use force and politically and diplomatically thinks it can, it's going to anyways. What really this what really turns on this is the ability to sustain detention. So, I, 
Detention first and foremost, but yeah. also sustain combat operations, right? Well, it's certainly boots on the ground. So, so, but I not, mean, but not the occasional episodic no, drone strike. I agree with that, but, but I mean, we are soon reaching the point where an overwhelming majority of Congress will not have voted for the AUMF, right? We're a couple years away from the first U.S. soldier dying who wasn't alive when the AUMF was enacted. Like, you know, I think if there's more than just you know, the, the, the at least for the moment, disappearing set of Guantanamo detainee cases to worry about here. I think there is a real drift problem of power from the legislature to the executive that Congress is directly responsible for abating and acquiescing in over the past 15 years. I think the important thing is we agree that the responsible thing to do, the good government thing to do, is certainly to have, A, have the debate, B, adapt something to our current set of circumstances. Right. Yeah. Um, and we just disagree about how legally yeah. necessary that is. Yeah, and, and I, I, will, I don't agree that the passage of time standing alone has really ought to do with it. I don't know. I mean, I think some of it depends on how, it, on, on how it's used by the president, I guess. And, we'll, and so for that, we'll say right. stay tuned. Yes. All, All right. right. So really quickly, because we don't want to leave on that depressing no, somber note. No, always must be trivial. Let's talk about who's going to so, – so by the time folks are listening to this, Bobby, the season premiere of, games, of Game of Thrones Season 7 will have happened. Woohoo! Um, spoiler alert – we haven't seen it. We can't spoil it because we're recording this before it happens. <laughs> so, so, so I thought it would be fun. Yeah, we we're uh, we can make predictions. So I thought it'd be fun to predict who is the next um, significant character to die, which of course maybe may have happened already by the time listeners are hearing right. this okay, on Monday. Who, do, who you put in, who you putting the mark on? All right, so I have two. I, I'm going to put the little the little mark on two different possibilities. Um, so the first is uh, low hanging fruit. The first is Jorah Mormont. Right? <laughs> well, he said it's because he's got a fatal illness. He has a fatal illness. He's going to die anyway. I could easily see him sacrificing himself, right, you know, to yeah. – um, And the second is Grey Worm, right, because, you know, that, that's his yeah. – Major character but not a ton of attachment to him because he doesn't get to say much. But there's one problem with my theory, hmm. right? Presumably Jorah and or Grey Worm will only die in some kind of confrontation – between the you know Targaryen army, the Tar- the, the Targaryen Dothraki army, the coalition forces, right? The coalition, the coalition of the East, right? Um, and somebody else, and it seems like that's going to take a couple episodes to get to. Uh, yeah, if I suppose it could happen though, you know, somebody tries to tries to poison the queen in in, in Dragonstone. I don't think. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Look, hey, you know, there's there's there are problems everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's probably right. That it, I don't think they're going to do any do off any major characters in that first episode because they're going to want to build a little emotional attachment. Yeah, although entirely because you don't think that it's bound to happen. There. It, well, here's the question. To me, this raises a larger question about what happens now that we're moving further into the post George R. R. Martin mm-hmm. uh, universe here, and closer to the end, where there are showrunners who are trying to build a story together, not necessarily necessarily committed to the uh, subversion of tropes and the subversion of expectations of the of the books um, and and you might wonder are we getting past the point where it's also shocking and the real shock becomes oh look at that it's starting to go more in a Hollywood direction where nah. the, it's all working out I, I hope not I listen if the season finale of season six is any indication I mean if you if you want to tell me that you saw the the destruction of the sept of Baylor coming no, no, that was awesome uh, I just wonder at a certain point they do run out of protagonists and I, and I bet you they're not willing to have this show oh, no, a, a right. the, you can't get to the, the greater war with the White right. Walkers well, no, so, so, so this to me is the big question right is season seven the humans sorting it out 
and then season eight is the humans versus the White Walkers, right? right? Is that is that how yeah. this is set up? Where season seven is going to be the resolution of who's actually going to be leading right. the inevitable army of humans that goes to war with the White Walkers? It it seems. It seems to be pointing that way. In a way, it's kind of disappointing because it feels formulaic. But it is what? Cer- what is formulaic? What formula are we copying? Because here? It, because that suggests it suggests a sort of a Whig history uh, approach to <laughs> Westeros, where eventually the good forces of wait, wait, you know, no, fire and ice no, 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 come you're together. Assuming, you're assuming. You're assuming. Right, that Danny, uh, Danny and John win and get married. Now, right, and so what I'm hoping, perhaps, is that it actually it goes that all goes terribly unexpectedly. Right. What, south. If, what if Cersei somehow and, and somehow the people that have to lead us now isn't this an interesting parable for our times? What if the people that have to lead the good forces of humanity against the scary uh, White Walker, you know, real danger powers, uh, North Korea or Phil and, Phil and other traditional enemies? Uh, what if it's somebody really imperfect and frankly not who you really want to be? Your so, so you're executive? saying is what if Danny and John John win the popular vote but lose the electoral college. Uh, what if they what if they cannibalize each other and leave Cersei in power? And then it's really what if what if the protagonist of the whole thing is Cersei? And it's up to her to save us from the White Walkers. Then I know who I'll be rooting for in season eight, and it's not <laughs> Cersei. <laughs> You know, uh, we'll see. It's going to be great to see. Uh, All right. So so we promised um, our, our mutual friend and the law school's communications person, Chris Roberts, that we would um, be more – we'd do better with our outros at the end of the podcast. Oh, yeah. we got to record this. But, but, we but why don't we say. just do it live right now? So so uh, as we wind down our podcast, let's just encourage everybody to follow NSL Podcast on Twitter, to follow Bobby Chesney at Bobby Chesney and Steve Vladek at Steve underscore Vladek on Twitter. To uh, get on iTunes and give us those reviews. Hey, I'm really happy to report, Steve, we are, last episode is nearly at 8,000 downloads and we are currently the number four ranked podcast on iTunes for the government and organizations category. That The sexiest of all categories in, yeah. in, in iTunes podcast. Let's just say that if we were instead categorized under like current affairs and politics, we would not be number four. Um, we're number four. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have a mug made. All right, so so we hope you guys will spread the word if you like this and even if you don't, you know, stick us on your enemies if not your friends. That's right. Um, and and stick around. You know, we'll be back next week. So the week of July. What's that by that point? Uh, 10th through. No, no. I think you. I, I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, Monday's like wait. the 17th. The, the yeah, 24th. I'm still, I'm still. I'm still thinking 4th of July. Good heavens. As you can tell, it's summer. Um, and so we're still in summer mode, but but we'll be back with with more, I think, yeah. headline generated content uh, the week right. of July 24th. So until then, everybody, thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. Adios.